Hi, Pastor Ryan here. The message you're about to hear is a little unusual in that it's highly conversational in tone as an effort to show how one might respond in a real conversation with a real person who has real questions. In other words, it's meant to train and prepare us to go and share our faith with our neighbors in the workplace and in the real world. I hope it prepares you and encourages you. God bless. Anyhow, uh, PG-13 this morning. So for families, we have ministries available for 0 to 2-year-olds, 3 and 4-year-olds, for your 5 to 8-year-olds, for your 9 to 12-year-olds, and would recommend you take them, if you haven't already, at this time. Because in a few minutes, they are likely to find out where they came from. <laughs> you know, you'll have to, a mommy and a daddy love each other. You know, they, they have a... Ch- and, it, and I won't be talking like that either. All right, it won't be in those words. So uh, I would just suggest, <laughs> seriously, you take your kids. So, yeah. All right. Now, lately, just to, to find out what's really going on in a person's life, and as I'm talking with them and having an encounter with them and asking the question, okay, take even God out of it for just a moment. What's the biggest obstacle in your life right now? And the most vulnerable response I received while asking this question over a period of about, I don't know, half a year, was on a putting green over, at, uh, over here at Britannia Golf Course. I was waiting to tee off, as was another gentleman who was here vacationing with his young family. And we're talking about light things, you know, talking about golf a little bit as well. We finally got, you know, a little more deep into personal matters and As we did so, I popped the question, right? What would you say is the biggest obstacle in your life right now? And he started to speak pretty openly. He said, you know, honestly, I enjoy my marriage and enjoy my wife. I pretty much always have, but she's always been kind of reserved. Uh, And since having children, we almost never have sex. In fact, I then follow up and ask him, well, what about, you know, now you're on vacation, you know, you're in man. He replied, nope, <laughs> I got this instead. In fact, I asked, I asked for sex today, instead she said, oh, honey, why not golf instead? <laughs> I said, wow, okay. <laughs> That's, uh, I understand. Honestly, he said, I want to stay married, you know, and and I want to be a good husband, but I don't know how much longer I can go without having sex with my wife. Another way to put this would be, how can a person who's married stay faithful, be self-giving, and provide pleasure while also receiving all three? In other words, it's a question this morning of red-hot romance. Now, if you spend enough time in social media, uh, you may have seen these triangles. Uh, These triangles of which, not unlike the harsh realities of life, you only get to pick two out of three. All right, so for instance, for the parents out there, uh, I saw this triangle of uh, children, clean house, sanity. All right, pick two. All right, that's all you get. Uh, or for, for if you're a student out there, studying hard, maybe you're over at SMU, UCCI, I don't know. Study, sleep, social life. 
right? You get to pick two. That's it. Maybe you're uh, in business, you're a project manager. You get to pick uh, high quality, on time, on budget. All right, pick two. You get two of those. Finally, I'll give you one more. I'm trying to cover everyone this morning. If you are knee-deep in the dating pool these days, good-looking, intelligent, emotionally stable, all right, you pick two. That's what you get, right? Except here at Sunrise Community Church, of course, where you get, there are so many great people, you could have all three, all right? Only here, here. Now, look, if you were married there are generally three things you're hoping to get. And you're even willing to give, you know, a sense of faithfulness, a permanency to your marriage. Self-giving, where you give completely of yourself. Your your spouse gives something to you. They don't give to anyone else, right? Self-giving. And thirdly, physical pleasure. However, typically in marriage, we only get to pick two our experience. So I want to talk about that this morning. Let's look at these scenarios of real marriages in real life. All right, so first, sometimes we seek faithfulness in marriage and self-giving in marriage, but without pleasure in marriage. This is what I would refer to as the roommate marriage that plagued our friend on the putting green, right? Where romance is devoid of the red hot, it becomes one's burn to bear, it's, it's lacking joy it's like that birthday celebrated only with the office break room cake. Sits there for about two or three days. Does anyone want it? It's in the refrigerator. You know, and that's sort of what marriage is like without red hot romance. Plus, we miss the whole point of our existence. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. When we enjoy God and marriage, which God has called the ideal human picture of his relationship with the church, then we bring immense and supreme glory to God. Too often, too often among clean-cut, morally respectable people, pleasure is looked upon suspiciously. Sometimes in marriage, though, we seek pleasure. You might seek to be self-giving, but often at the expense of faithfulness. This is the never-enough marriage. Common to people who want to be happy. They really really want their spouse to be happy. But you'll do whatever to make it happen. So one spouse may bring in pornography into the marriage to watch and indulge together because one person is not enough. I counsel couples, and this is a reality. Spouses will be cool with letting the other spouse do their own thing sexually while they do their own thing. Seems helpful, right? I'm helping the other, but it's very giving of me. Meanwhile, though, in doing so, both are giving themselves over to something or someone that is not their spouse. And not only will that not satisfy, incredibly damaging and difficult to repair. The other scenario, you could be two out of three, is you... Seek faithfulness and pleasure, but without the self-giving. I call this the exchange marriage. I give you what you need, you give me what I need. The theory is with work, with kids, with everything going on in our lives, all these activities, charity events, this and that, this makes life manageable. 
However, ensuing bitterness is inevitable. It's inevitable because it feels, number one, ingenuine. Right? You start to wonder if your spouse is only married to you purely out of convenience, not out of genuine love and genuine respect for that person. But number two, it's always I am giving more on my end. A marriage based on compromise never works. Never works for two reasons. But it's based on compromise. One partner is always waiting for the other to act first. Right? I'll leap if you leap. Okay, I'll do it as long as you do it. But also, one partner always feels like he or she is giving more than the other. So eventually when a decision, when some action, when a lifestyle choice comes up as it always does, each person likes to play the martyr. Wait a minute. Remember, last time I, I gave up a lot for you in this. I, I was the one who sacrificed. Well, wait a minute. No, no, no. It was me. So my marriage based on compromise doesn't work. And so in an age when variety of choice is prized, sex sensationalized, exploited, and so-called wise people encourage us to make choices based on self-preservation alone, the possibility of a three out of three marriage, it left at the honeymoon suite. But a vivid picture of a three out of three marriage does exist in the middle of the Bible including and especially the part about red-hot romance. So I want you to open your Bibles, if you've got them, to a Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, I should say, uh, chapter 7, starting in verse 11. And this Song of Solomon is one of two books in the Bible that reads like a play or a dramatic dialogue, the other one being uh, the book of Job. And it's about a wealthy nobleman whose eye and whose heart is caught by a peasant girl, right? Classic story. Gets to know her, courts her, marries her, and they love having sex together. I'm going to throw that out there. That's right. It's in the Bible. A whole book about it. It's crazy. All right. So, and it's one reason why it's the only book in the Bible with the distinction of having been censured at one point by the Christian church. For centuries, young Jewish boys were forbidden to read it. So if if you're young, Jewish, and a boy, you know, you might want to refrain. Otherwise, I want you to join with me this morning, right? Because I think you're going to see the the perfect triangle of marriage, both separately and all mixed together, what we're going to read this morning. So first, what we'll see is pleasure. Pleasure. Chapter 7, starting in verse 11, it's the, the bride, the, the wife talking. And she's going to do most of the talking, actually, in this passage this morning. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields, let us lodge in the villages, let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened, and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. All right, first of all, if as a teenager you were ever forced to read the Bible, maybe it was in Sunday school class or a religion class, whatever it might be, that you no doubt read something that sounded kind of dirty and you immediately giggled, 
And you're like, and you know, like that. Or, or maybe you made an inappropriate joke, right? Like, that's what she said kind of thing back then. <laughs> Let me assure you, your mind is not in the gutter as you read this this morning. You are right to think that when she says, you know, let's go, let's go see what's happening down in the fields and among the vineyards. She's not just referring to a southern wheat harvest or a wine tasting, right? In Napa Valley or something like that. The context is, in fact, making love. And what's great about this, no other major religion so describes, so encourages, it even commands the enjoyment of sex. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, in fact, commands married couples not to go too long without it. Something I'm appreciative of. But I promised my wife I would make no personal references this morning. So uh, I'm going to keep to that. Verse 13. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. The thing to note here is not only is pleasure good, so is exploring new pleasure with one's spouse. Right? She's got some new school and some old school laid up for her husband. Mandrakes here are viewed as ancient aphrodisiacs who assist in the enjoyment. By the way, not just new pleasures, but all pleasures, right? All choice fruits available. This provides a good rule of thumb, I think, for, for marital sex. Trying new things and leaving things on the table is okay as long as the whole triangle is covered. Right? As long as it's pleasurable, right? That it feels good. It doesn't harm the other person. Uh, but also, the other person enjoys it also or more so. It's self-giving. And finally, it doesn't involve or include images or thoughts of other people. Right? It's faithful. Right? It includes the whole triangle there. You see that? Let's keep going. Chapter 8, verse 1. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. Okay, she's gone too far here, right? What in the world? She has a thing for her brother? I mean, this world is, whoa, off the, well, unreal. But not at all. At this time, uh, this period in history and this culture, romantic PDA was strictly forbid- forbidden, right? Romantic displays of public affection were strictly frowned upon. But a Euro kiss of family affection was not. Right, this was okay. So what she's basically saying is, man, I wish I could kiss you anytime, anywhere I wanted. Right All right, here we go. Verse 2, I would lead you, I would bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. Now, they revel in pleasure here. Now, the part about her mom's house sounds weird. I admit that, like, what? Uh, that's not helping me. Your mom's house is not somewhere I think about a lot with you and me. But so we realized earlier in chapter 3, she actually had a premarital dream of them. I know it. This is in the Bible. She had a premarital dream of them making love in her mom's house. And essentially, she has... This is a wish fulfillment here, all right, going on. I mean, this is big time. A little wine, her pomegranates. And, and, and look, I, I, they are reveling in pleasure. And, and I spend a lot of time talking about this and, and you blushing about this maybe. 
a lot of people thank God. Either A, thinks sex is dirty, and he just prefers that we all wear flannel pajamas, (laughs) or B, he begrudgingly permits sex for the procreation of the human race. Right? Like, people got to be born, so it's okay. I'll just, I'm God, I'm just going to close my eyes, you know. But, but actually, the command to unite physically through sex actually comes before the command to bear children in Scripture. Sarah, the ideal woman of Jewish history, laughed upon hearing she'd get preggers at age 90. Then she says to herself, after I've grown old, Shall I have pleasure, my husband being old also? She's 90 years old, and she's talking about pleasure. All right, this is pre-Viagra, people. All right? One more fun fact, and again, it's a really fun fact you take home with you, about God's pleasure with our pleasure in marriage comes from the dusty, archaic Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 24.5. Listen to this. If a man has recently married... He must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year, he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. Bring happiness, literally translated, again, hoping that there are children here. They better be gone. All right. Bring happiness, literally, to know sexually, understand what is exquisitely pleasing to her physically. A man is called to a year of that. Now, the world says one to two weeks is good. God says a year. So people will occasionally ask me, hey, Ryan, do you believe, do you really believe all of the Bible is written by God and we're supposed to do what it says? And I like to respond sometimes, yeah, there's some advantages to that. <laughs> all right? And this, here are some of them. Verse 3. His, I mean, his left hand is under my head. His right hand embraces me. This is widely regarded by scholars as a Woo, sexual position. All right, this is, again, in the Bible, and I'm going to stop there, if only for my single friends. All right, uh, it, but it's, this is, God wants us to have pleasure, to experience pleasure. We'll talk about more why that is later. Surgeon Paul Brand writes that if you are looking, though, for a pure pleasure nerve in the human body, you're going to be left disappointed. But he talks about how pure physical pleasure is a byproduct of cooperation of many factors, working together, not the least of which are the giving of self and of faithfulness. So we'll look at those also in this passage. There's a self-giving going on here. Look at chapter 8, verses 11 through 12. Turn with me there if you would. She says, you know, Solomon, this is the woman still talking, Solomon, referring here to her, her man. He had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He let out the vineyard to keepers. A lot of symbolism here, right? But... Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, have the thousand. In other words, keep the thousand, the keepers of the fruit, two thousand. Solomon had fields that yielded for him a lot of money. He's a wealthy man. But her vineyard is not for sale, he's saying. It is hers alone to give, which she does freely. He says, keep your money. I'm going to give this freely. In fact, her comments immediately remind me of something Jesus himself said in John chapter 10. My life is my own to give. talked about that I alone have the authority to lay it down, to give it. Which he does, and freely. 
for anyone who would trust him. Similarly, this marriage works because even in the bedroom, she is pleased to give up her own pleasure for his pleasure. And indeed, the highest pleasure for a spouse is giving his spouse her highest pleasure. Make sense? The highest pleasure for a spouse is giving his spouse her highest pleasure. So it's self-giving. It's also faithful. Also faithful, this picture of marriage. Turn with me, if you would, to verse 6 of chapter 8. These famous lines, you may have heard them before, set me as a seal upon your heart, she says to him. As a seal upon your arm. And so the seal is, a, is meant to consign ownership for something. It's like a label maker, but even more permanent. At the risk of sounding hallmarkish here, she, she freely loses herself to him. Which some would call a loss of individuality. A, a lo- you know, it would be oppression. It would be uh, this subjection, but not if it's freely offered. In fact, I would argue that we are the most free when we choose to freely belong to another. So marriage is this faithful belonging to another. But it's also a permanent belonging to another. We see this as we go on here in verse 6. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It's permanency. Flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of God. Waters cannot quench love. Again, the permanency here. Floods cannot drown it. This is some beautiful poetry of God's ideal, but again, our experience is what? We get two out of three of these. When we live life, our experience is we, we just can't get these things working together. And every well-meaning person goes through seasons, whether it's after they have a kid or you're starting a new career or you're facing a unique challenge in your life where one out of three is understandably missing. And for seasons of time, not just for a day, a week, a month, what do you do then? Do you just check out also? Do you go MIA? Do you sort of, in in anger or resignation, just stop serving them? And you serve only yourself? Do you give up on, on having pleasure? give up on staying faithful? I mean, in some ways, how could you not? So how then can you carry on providing pleasure, giving of self, and staying faithful even when it's not reciprocated? I think the key here is in this passage. At least it opens the door, verses 8 through 10 of Song of Solomon chapter 8. So let's look at this together. and We're going to find our answer. And really the answer to our question this morning. Song of Songs, chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 8 through 10. We have a little sister. These are, these are actually brothers now talking, okay, for a moment here. They kind of insert their way into this, this dramatic play. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. Right, this is typical brother talk, right? My brothers tease their sisters all the time. But in fact, they are actually just flashing back around five years or so Scholars say before marriage, when, when this, their sister was younger, she was just younger, right? And, and they felt the responsibility, the keen responsibility to protect her as brothers. All right, keep going here. Uh, what shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? 
What shall we do for her? Now, what's in mind here is what's known as a dowry, uh, a contribution of the bride's family to marriage. This would happen back in ancient times among many different cultures. A bride would, bride's family would make a contribution to the marriage family. And the question would be here in the mother's minds is, will it be a small dowry, a small amount of money, or a large amount of money? And what's indicated here is that it depends on our sister's sexual purity and behavior before the big day. For instance, if she is a wall, look at verse 9 here, if she is a wall, or if she's a door. If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. If she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. So if she's modest, stays close to God, avoids temptation, she's going to act like a wall which no one can breach. And then precious silver's reward. That's the reward for marriage. That's the blessing, right? But if she's flirtatious, if she forms inappropriate friendships, if she acts like a swinging door which anyone can come in and out of, they're going to have to work hard to board up that door. Right? Get some cedar in there. That's going to make them more reluctant than to bless the marriage. In other words, to, to summarize why this is important for what I'm going to talk about here, there are a lot of premarital pressures on this woman. As for all women, both external and internal. Am I valuable? How much, how much am I worth? Am I able to wait? Can I hold up? Will I still be loved if I do hold up and set up a wall? All these things. And she brings these pressures like anyone naturally would. She brings these pressures like anyone else into marriage also. And the trajectory of her life may in fact depend on how her husband responds to these pressures. How he begins to answer these questions in her life. So let's see what happened here. Verse 10. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. So we know she gets married because of one of the funniest lines in some ways of Scripture to me, um, usually private or in a small group, admittedly. But she's basically saying, I was a wall. But just so there's no confusion, there's been a lot of metaphor swirling around, now my breasts are like towers. All right, so I was one way, but now I'm, you know, another way. And then she goes on to say, Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Now she's married. And I believe she's actually recalling an important part of the marriage consummation, the important part of the sexual experience. It's that moment after sex when we are designed to rest in the knowledge that we've given all of ourself fully to the other person and we are fully accepted by the other person. That self-giving and the faithfulness experience. In Hollywood, uh, this moment is traditionally typified by silence and smoking a cigarette in bed. Right? And you see this moment. And it's actually not that far off. That's the weird thing. It's not that far off. In some ways, the, the most telling moment about the relationship in the sexual, is in the sexual act right after it. This moment designed for peace. For experiencing peace between one another. People rarely have such peace, do they? After consummating the marriage relationship. You know, if, if things have like, now that I've given them sex, they're going to want more from me. 
Or, now that I've given the sex, they're going to they're check out. People start to think, man, well, you know, when we've hit our quota for the week, for the month, you know, there's no way I won't get the cold shoulder now. After the elation has died down, we think, man, was that, was that really conditional or was that unconditional? Insecurity starts to set in, right? In Song of Solomon, though, she receives peace from him in this moment. Complete peace. And I think peace both because he pursues her pleasure and because he'd pursue it without being pursued. And this is the key, friends. Peace because he pursues her pleasure and because he'd pursue it without being pursued. How does a man or woman provide such peace and possess such peace? I would suggest the only way is to include Jesus into your love triangle. Marriage is not a two-way street nor a roundabout, although it often feels like we're going in circles in marriage, right? But it's a three-way love triangle. You're not going to hear that much in church, right? Jesus is the reason you can provide pleasure, you can give of self, you can remain faithful when you don't feel like it. And he's the reason you can give without receiving back. He's the only person that makes that possible. This is a God who has come down to the earth to bring us peace. Most people at varying frequencies throughout their life sense a relational disconnect, first between others, certainly between them and their spouse, and then between God and them. At times it feels like a fence, at times it's like a river, it's like, sometimes it's like a canyon. But until we gain peace with God, we can never recover that sustainable peace with other people. God came down to do what we could not. Jesus Christ lived a faithful life of obedience to his heavenly Father. He gave himself to make peace between us and him. And now he has risen from the dead to give us pleasures, he says, forevermore. He gives those three things. You become a bride to him, him the bridegroom. That is the gospel, friends. That's the good news that Jesus comes to bring. So in in pursuing pleasure for your spouse through sex, you are actually ministering to him or to her a taste of the gospel. As one scholar put it, sex teaches us the gospel. You give of yourself, and in doing so, you promise that it's an exclusive, it's a faithful gift. And your greatest pleasure becomes seeing the other person most pleased. The picture of the gospel. You give them a taste of the gospel. You remind your spouse, or you teach your spouse the gospel. It's no surprise then that God has designed marital sex as the highest physical delight Because it reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. But equally, when when a spouse doesn't respond, when it's not reciprocal, Jesus' inclusion into your love triangle gives you the resources required to pursue without being pursued. When you know that someone has given themselves to you fully through the cross, given all of themselves, taken up the punishment of God for the rebellion of all mankind, when you realize that someone is ever with you, though you tend to wander. Someone promises you hints of pleasure in this life and eternal pleasures forever, even though you seek lesser pleasures 
and your love is usually lukewarm. You realize if God has done this and is doing this freely for you in Jesus Christ, you can do likewise as you daily draw strength from the gospel. You see that? So when Jesus heads up your marriage, sexual experience bursts with purpose and beyond even the physical pleasure. And you are given every necessary resource to realistically pursue without being pursued. Or to summarize it another way, Jesus' inclusion in your love triangle leads to better and fuller sex and quenches your thirst during a drought. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your purpose, even in red-hot romance, Lord. It's here. I mean, the, the things here in the Bible can make us blush, but they are in the Bible, and it, it's a gift to us, Lord. It's a gift to marriages. So I just, if you are in a decent place this morning in your marriage, I want to encourage you to include Jesus still in your love triangle. And it doesn't have to be both of you. It could be one of you. But include Jesus in your love triangle so you can minister to your spouse a taste of the gospel through consummating your love. You remind. Maybe if your spouse doesn't know Christ, you, you teach the gospel to your spouse. You can explain that there's a greater purpose behind this. If your spouse is unresponsive in any of these areas, And maybe you've wondered why. Why isn't this working? Why can't I make this work in my life? Maybe it's because you haven't included Jesus into your life and into your marriage. And I want to encourage you this morning, if that's you, to trust Jesus. The only God who's ever talked about in human history who has given himself fully to you, who promises to remain faithful ever with you, and by rising from the dead, invites you to a life of pleasures evermore as well as in this life. And you can draw on that every day of your life. When you feel like there's a drought, when you feel like it's not a two-way street, you rely on Jesus who's always giving, who's always sustaining, who can give you the divine power and love to love your spouse even when you don't experience that love. So I want to invite you if that's you this morning, to finally include Jesus into your life and into your marriage. Ask him this morning. Simply ask him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to know more about this kind of marriage where Jesus is part of your relationship, part of the love triangle, uh, in May... We're going to be having an Art of Marriage event. Very excited about this. Uh, Friday, May 24th, uh, as well as Saturday, May 25th. Uh, it'll be $35. There'll be more information to come. And it's not yet on the uh, website, but uh, just make a mental note uh, if that's something you think will be of value to you. I want to encourage anyone who's married uh, just to plunge into that. It'll be a really encouraging weekend.